Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant within the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbour and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this, the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbour and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Thank you, Josh, for doing our reading. Let's just pray together from Psalm 119. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Lord, lead us into truth now and let it taste good. Lord, give us a lamp to our path. Light up the way in front of us, for all of us. Whatever we're trying to figure out, whatever we're trying to understand, Lord, give us understanding today. Help us to trust in you and therefore not choose the wrong path in our lives, but to follow you. Amen. Amen. So you join us in week or part seven of our um, series that we're doing, going through the whole Bible in 12-ish verses. Um, and this is the seventh one. We are in Jeremiah. We're getting relatively close to the end of the Old Testament storyline as a whole. So I'll just give you the story so far. God had promised time and time again to make a nation great. A nation that had been in slavery in Egypt. He rescued them out of that situation. He made promises to Abraham before that about all of this. And then he established them in this place, Israel, and he made them great. They owed their greatness to him. They owed their prosperity to him. They owed all of the money and the wealth and the favor and everything that they had to him. God had made them into a great nation and then he'd established a king on top of that nation so that they would be a unified kingdom together rather than separate tribal um, sort of people groups. 
And with all of that in mind, the people still chose to rebel against God and to worship other gods instead. They decided that the the gods of the other nations, the neighboring nations, that hadn't ever done anything for them, now were suddenly worth worshipping. And they would slip very easily into one worshipping one god or another. And with that came a whole load of uh, injustice and civil unrest. People, the, the rich got richer and the poor got poorer in that nation. They started to enslave one another their behavior started to reflect the neighboring gods that they were worshiping. And so God sent prophet after prophet, who were kind of just messengers of God, to warn them of what would happen if they abandon him, if they continually go away from him. He's going to give them chance after chance after chance, but if they continue to do that, the consequences will be atrocious for them. And the prophets came again and again to the nation, and still they didn't listen. So after, actually I'll backtrack, King David had established this unified kingdom. On the line above, there is a dramatic line that suddenly goes down. That illustrates the separation of the whole kingdom of Israel into two nations, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom went into a steep decline very quickly. That was the 10 tribes up in the north. They went into a steep decline because they abandoned the Lord very quickly and came up with their own ways of worship and all of that kind of stuff. They eventually were taken into exile and wiped out, essentially, by the nation of Assyria. The southern kingdom, which was just two tribes, continued for a bit longer and saw a couple of revival moments under certain kings who kind of sorted the nation out. But really, it was a slow decline until the point that Jeremiah is prophesying, at which the, uh, the nation of Babylon came in and wiped out uh, the remaining tribe, which was the tribe of Judah, largely, and took most of them into exile, into Babylon. So this nation now was essentially a displaced people. They were refugees in, another, in other nations. They had been torn apart. They had been ripped out of their family homes. They had lost everything due to military invasion. And now, well, this happened and has been happening around the world recently in all sorts of situations outside of the Ukraine situation, but now even more so uh, on the BBC. We see the kind of impact that a military invasion has on a nation when they all have to uh, flee and go to another place. And you can imagine the feelings that they're experiencing. And you don't even have to imagine them, actually. If you just read through the prophets, you can hear the words and the feelings that those people were experiencing as they went into um, exile in another nation. They felt weary, weary from all the travel, weary from being pulled this way and that, weary from not having a place to rest. They felt worn out because of all of this. They felt angry because of what had occurred to them, what had happened. Think of the children growing up in exile. They are getting bitter because they didn't do anything 
that it wasn't their sin, it was the sins of their fathers and their fathers' fathers that got them in this situation. So they're growing in bitterness because they never know when they're going to be able to go back to this promised land that everyone has talked about because they're being born outside of it and they're, raised, they're growing up outside of that situation. People have lost their entire fortunes. Think about it. Family histories, gaining land, gaining wealth, establishing, establishing yourself and your family name, and then all of it taken in an instant, and you never know whether you're going to be able to recover that or not. You don't know what's going to be left when you return, if you return, within your lifetime or your uh, descendants' lifetime. They felt betrayed. At times, they felt betrayed by God's because it felt like God had abandoned them. They felt hopeless and they felt lost. And now actually, just even reflecting on this, it's made me think I'm so glad that the Bible is available all around the world because I wouldn't be able to offer, someone facing that kind of situation now, I wouldn't be able to offer them any convincing words of comfort or anything. But the Bible has everything to comfort and understand their situation. And this kind of leads me into the second point. I think often people think of God as vindictive or distant or not interested in our circumstances, not interested in our complaints, not interested in our feelings, especially if our feelings are related to some sinful stuff that we've done and then things have gone wrong and we're feeling bad about it. And you might get a religious chap who comes along and says, hey, you shouldn't be moaning, this is all your fault anyway. Or you shouldn't be feeling those things because, hey, haven't you got bigger priorities? But actually, we discover in these passages, in this whole section of Jeremiah, the reassurance of God. The fact that God really understands and really cares about what you're going through, about what the refugees around this world are going through at the moment. But even if you haven't been physically displaced, you can feel all of these feelings in the day-to-day -day anyway. Just two comments in um, the preceding verses that stood out to me. God says through Jeremiah to the people who had sinned so atrociously and essentially given up everything, and it was their fault, but God says to them, there is hope for your future declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. Just such incredibly inviting and encouraging words for people who really have, they're looking at their situations and think, there is no way back. Not even for me, maybe I will die in Babylon, but my children are never going to be able to return to that land. Our family is never going to be able to restore their fortune. And God says very specifically to them, no, 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 that will happen. You will be able to return. And then another verse, verse 20. For as often as I speak against Israel, him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. See, sometimes a bad situation that you're facing might, and I emphasize the word might, might be an element of God's discipline in your life. If you've been sinning in a certain way and then the situation hasn't gone well, like in their, in their case, it might be a reflection of God's discipline in your life, but it is not a reflection of God's feelings for you and his heart for you. Because nothing 
can separate us from the love of Christ, even our own sin and our own rebellion. And God is reminding the nation of that reality. Despite their awful circumstances that are caused by their own hands, and God allowed them to be taken into exile and to be disciplined because of all their behavior, he didn't stop loving them ever. And perhaps there's some people who need to hear that and need to be reminded that your situation doesn't reflect, if you're a child of God, if you've believed in Christ, your situation does not reflect God's feelings for you and God's heart for you. So there was nothing that Israel could have done to stop God loving them, and there was nothing that they could have done to stop God keeping his promises to them. And remember, he has promised to establish them in this world to make them a mighty nation, and then he has promised to bring them back out of exile and to restore them as a nation after this time of discipline. And he keeps that promise. Later on, as that line carries on, there is an exile, but then they return to the nation of Israel, and they can restore things, and they can rebuild, and they can experience new blessing and new comfort, and all the spiritual blessings that have been offered to them as, as the nation, they can return and get all of that back and more. And God kept that promise and brought them back. Now, can you imagine the feelings, the feelings of recovery and rest that feeling of being able to relax because you're not trapped in another nation, but you've got your land back, you've got your home back, you are restored. The freedom of religion, no longer under this nation that tried to trap you and didn't allow you to worship your God in freedom, now you can, now you can lift up your praise, now you can pray out loud in public. Imagine the feelings, those feelings of relief and restoration. And it reminds me a bit of uh, when we came into this space for the first time in November. And we'd been waiting for this building project to finish. We'd been praying about it for so long. And we'd been exiled to the horrors of the main hall. And then we got to come back into here. And the feelings were uh, incredible. I cried on stage. It was like we were just overawed. It was amazing. Such a brilliant moment in our history. But then, a couple of weeks later, I started to notice all the snags and the problems, and I started grumbling, and I started complaining, and I wasn't so grateful about having to move chairs, and all sorts of things started to come out of me that had been hidden in that moment of great relief and great restoration. Suddenly, that restoration became a bit more tainted. And it wasn't quite as perfect as I'd made out. And then other feelings start creeping in. And I don't know, I felt as I was reflecting on this that this reflects a lot of our lives. You might get the perfect job. You might get that absolute dream place at university. You might move to the ideal home in the ideal area. You might get your kids into the best school in the, in the neighborhood. You might obtain the perfect promotion at work, get the pay rise. You might even find the dream partner for, to, to get married to. And everything seems hunky-dory and perfect for a couple of weeks. And then your 
Commitment turns into complacency. Your applause turns into arguments. And your celebrations turn into selfishness. And we slide. And we sin. And actually the corruption starts to creep through again. And the, the perfect situation doesn't seem so perfect anymore. This was the story of Israel. This was the story of me in this building. Even though I still love it, but there are issues. And those issues come out of me. And this is the story of all of us, isn't it? That restoring someone's circumstances and situations is not the ultimate solution. Israel proved this. You can put human beings in the perfect situation and it won't all go well. There, um, I feel like I need... Uh, I tried this uh, example and someone said to me earlier, um, no, I've never heard of this, but I feel like some people have. Have you heard of the monkey typewriter infinite cage thing? Some people are nodding. Okay, so the scenario is this. Uh, philosophers suggest if you put infinite monkeys with infinite typewriters for infinite time, eventually they will write Shakespeare. They would also write my sermon, but they, they would eventually write Shakespeare is the pointless theory. Um, well, what the history of Israel proves is give infinite humans infinite opportunities to follow one rule, to love one another, and they will inevitably sin always. Give infinite humans infinite opportunities to love God and love their neighbor, and they will all inevitably fail. That is the proven record of the human race. And why is that? Well, it's because the problem isn't our situation. The problems don't arise from our circumstances. Now, those can exacerbate things, they can make things worse, or they can make things a little bit better, but they don't solve the problem because the problem is a lot deeper and a lot closer to home. The problem is our human hearts. And that is why that is the emphasis of this prophecy in Jeremiah and throughout the whole nation of Israel, this was the emphasis that God was giving in his prophetic words to say, I'm really going to solve the problem when I solve the problem of the human heart. Because that's where the problem lies. Inside every single one of us is corruption from the day we're born. And it will come out in some way, no matter how good or bad your circumstances might be that corruption, that disease will work its way out of you and it will ruin things, always. And that is why the problem can only be solved when the heart is solved and the heart is changed. That's what this promise and this prophecy is all about. But the thing is, there are certain repairs that can only be done by the manufacturer. There's certain things where, yes, maybe in the home, you could, it's not, maybe your appliance breaks and you could kind of fix the switches or something like that. But there's certain breakages that it just says, you need to return this to the manufacturer. And this is one of those. The human heart being diseased and broken can only be fixed by our manufacturer, God, our creator. And so that's why in this passage we have this quadruple emphasis on the words, I will. It says this, for this 
is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Does anyone get a sense of God's skepticism about our ability to solve our situation? See, because people often try and return to God by their own human effort. You hear people say, I want to get right with God. I want to sort out my relationship with God. I feel like I've gone away. I need to sort things out. And what you will hear out of their mouth is a lot of I wills, a lot of commitments to do better, a lot of lists of I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this in order to restore things and make things better between me and God. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I will, I will, I will. And I think the message from Scripture is simply, you won't, you won't, you won't. You might commit for a short period of time. You might do a bit better. There might be a honeymoon phase. But eventually, your commitment to reading the Bible all the time, or your commitment to pray more and more regularly, whatever it might be, your commitment to go to church, all of this will fade. It will decline. Because the basis of you returning to God is about what I will do what you will do. Whereas the whole basis of the Bible is what God has done, what he is doing, and what he will do, not what we will do. So coming back to God is all about accepting, and some people might be in the room today wanting to get right with God and wanting to restore their relationship with him, and that is a fantastic uh, desire that he has put in you. But please do it on his basis, not your basis. His basis is this, I will, I will, I will, I will. It's what God will do. And this has been the biggest sort of change for me when it comes to reading these verses in Jeremiah about this new future with a new heart and new people. I always read this selfishly. I always read this as The prophecy was about a new kind of people who were different and who were essentially, essentially it comes down to this. I'd always read this as Christians, so people after the day of Pentecost, Christians are going to be much more obedient than Old Testament Jews were. I'd always read it just like that, and I'd always read it as that means that I should be able to quite easily be better than all of the Old Testament Jews in my behavior because of what this, these passages say. Because they prophesy about a new people who have the, heart, the law written on their hearts and they will be more obedient, etc., etc., etc. Now, there's some truth in that, but I was missing the major ingredient in all of that. And that was causing me a lot of disillusionment and a bit of depression and disappointment because I'd look at myself and think, I am not finding this as easy as these passages seem to suggest I should. So should that make me start to doubt that any of this is real, that the Holy Spirit is working in me, etc., etc.? And then I realized that actually all of the prophecies of the Old Testament find their epicenter in Jesus, not in me. And that is where we have our starting place. So think about this. The new covenant, the new thing about the new covenant is primarily, firstly, Jesus. And then everything stems from there. So let's just think about it. First, it was Jesus coming to this earth. And at the beginning of Luke's gospel, we get Jesus saying, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me 
to go and break people free and to release the captive from slavery and to do this and to do that. And we see him doing it all over the place. We saw him last week as Holly spoke to us with the woman who'd been bleeding for so many years. No one else in Israel had been able to help her. Just one touch from Jesus and she was restored. Think of the relief for her as that moment, suddenly the thing that had drained her for 12 years suddenly changed. One touch from Jesus. Or there's the woman at the well, a Samaritan woman, a northern woman, who thought that maybe the God of Israel was not for her anymore because they'd betrayed him so much. Maybe she was under the condemnation permanently of God and she would never be restored to this family of God anymore. And then Jesus meets her at a well and knows her situation, speaks into her life, and she is restored again in an instant. There's a demonized man who's so full of demons and so under the control of Satan and what the world around him was getting him to do. Imagine how trapped he would have felt. One word from Jesus and he is totally free, totally restored once again to be what God has created him to be. It's this over and over again. Jesus in his life was the epicenter of this prophecy that there will be a new covenant where people will be fully restored. In his life and in his ministry, one touch from Jesus and you experience this prophecy coming true. But then it's not just that, because in his death, there is a monumental shift in Israel's history. Because yes, they'd gone into exile and they'd been punished for their sins. And then God in these prophecies said, I will forgive your sins. When, when I restore you to the land, I will forgive you of your sin. It will be a sign that I have forgiven you. You'll be, in, you'll be in Babylon for a certain amount of time, but then I will have forgiven you, and the sign of that will be you're back in your land again. So they're back in the land. But then the same sacrificial system continues. Goats, lambs, bulls, all animals that were clearly insufficient. The blood of a lamb is nowhere close to being able to cover up my actual sins. These things were totally not sufficient, and the Jews knew this. And so God had restored them and said to them, I will forgive you, I have forgiven you, but that feeling of condemnation would still always remain because the sacrificial system was not sufficient to genuinely convince the people that they were actually forgiven. Those sins must have been stored up somewhere in heaven and the Jews didn't know how those sins were going to be dealt with because the blood of rams and goats and bulls could not solve that problem. So there's this ongoing cloud of condemnation over the nation of Israel and you see it in the Gospels and in the New Testament. And then Jesus dies for his people. Instead of a sheep or a goat or a bull, a man dies for his people, and suddenly the Israelites got it. There's no cloud of condemnation over our, our heads anymore. There is no sense of God still having a grudge against us, no sense of God not really forgiving our sins because the blood of animals can't achieve that. Now they felt so relieved, so released 
that they could be permanently forgiven forever. They never needed to return to the temple and kill another animal again. There were no more placeholders because the permanent sacrifice had happened. So Jesus' sacrifice is what's new about the new covenant. And then finally, his resurrection and his ascension. And this really helped me. Who was the heart of the people of God? In the Old Testament, who was the heart? Who was the head? It was the kings and the priests. They were the heart and the head of the nation. And they were always corrupt. No matter how good a king they might have been, there was always corruption in the heart and the head of the people of God. So even the faithful ones on the outskirts looked to the center of the nation and they had doubt. They were totally uncertain because the next king would be even worse than the next and the next. And those would lead the nation into total devastation because the kings were famous for rebelling against God and causing the whole people to go in that same direction. And so the heart and the head of the nation of Israel was always diseased because it was all, always led by corrupt human beings. But when Jesus rose from the dead and went up into heaven and sat down on the throne, we don't need any human kings anymore. We've got the perfect heavenly king and priest who is the center of God's people forever. And there is no corruption in him. There is no disease and he is eternally there. That means at our core, our heart and our head is perfectly sinless, is perfectly pure, and we have no need to worry about the state of God's people because the very center is perfect. So what's new about the new covenant? Well, it's Jesus at the center, making everything better than the old covenant had. And that then means that it ripples out to his body as well. But I would just say this, if you've ever doubted Christianity because of the Christians that you know, and this is widespread, many people look at Christianity through the lens of the Christians that they know. And to some extent, that is just natural and that should happen. But please, please, if you're trying to judge the truthfulness, the goodness of Christianity, please look at our head and our heart, Jesus Christ. Don't look at us. And I'm going to show you why. Because the next thing is this, the head and the heart of Christianity is perfect. It's Jesus. And then it pumps out the blood to the rest of the body. And that is the Holy Spirit coming down to his people. But this is where it's very important to get our understanding from the New Testament correct. In 2 Corinthians 3, and I'm going to read uh, a little bit of this, says this, You are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not by ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us sufficient. Do you remember that prophecy? I will do it. I will do it. I will do it. God is the one that make, makes us sufficient for this new life. To be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. 
What I'm just going to be reading, I want you to notice every time the Spirit is emphasized here, because we really need to understand and learn to rely on the Spirit. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? And then going down to verse 17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It's that final line that means the world to me. We all beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. In Christianity, transformation does not come from learning to follow the rules. It, learns from, it comes from learning to follow Jesus. And there is a huge difference there. You don't come into church and come into Christianity and just go, okay, what are the rules? I need to learn to follow them. No, you learn to relate to Jesus, your Savior. That's the key difference. And it doesn't come from us putting our best suits on and really going for it. It comes from the Spirit. And notice how the Holy Spirit will work out this obedience in people. And this relates to the whole thing of Christians being disappointing and us being disappointing to ourselves because of how slow things are. Well, it says here, the Holy Spirit does all of this one step at a time, from one degree of glory to another. He doesn't turn everything up to 11 instantly when he comes upon a human being. He doesn't turn you up to max temperature, 360 in the oven. He'll do it one degree of glory to the next. He works slowly in us. The Holy Spirit understands that we are weak vessels that probably can't handle much more than that. And he will work this obedience in us slowly. So we need to learn to be patient with one another and patient with ourselves. And so I guess my question really is this. Are you aware of what the Holy Spirit is doing in you at the moment? Um, we, we're, doing, we're just finishing up the missional life course in our Become season for the course I was doing. And he made a really good observation that many of us without realizing it, flip the Lord's Prayer upside down. So in our prayers, we start with, God, will you protect me? And God, will you provide for me? And then God, make sure that you get the glory at the end of it. Whereas the Lord's Prayer starts with God's priority. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then goes to provision and then protection. And that's because God just wants us to get his priority rather than our priority. Because that's what's best for us. And that's what the Holy Spirit will be doing. And that's what it means to be walking by the Spirit in your daily life. Is learning to understand God's priority for you right now. What's the step of obedience that he's calling you to make right now? It might be tiny, it might be one degree on the oven that you would not notice the temperature difference, but it makes a world of difference. What's the little thing that God is speaking to you about? That requires exactly what Howard was doing earlier, stopping, pausing, reflecting, 
time to hear from God. It requires going up for prayer so that you can sense in the community of faith what God might be saying in your life at the moment. Are you giving time for him? And then just finally, are you waiting for him? This is the return of Christ. Later on in 2 Corinthians, it says this, He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us all for an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The difference between the old covenant and the new covenant was like the difference between a paper aeroplane and a Boeing 747. It is a world of difference because this is the reality. This is the real deal that we're working with, that we are living in. The new covenant, the new agreement that God has made with his people. But that plane hasn't yet arrived. It hasn't yet landed. It's still flying in the air. I'm mixing metaphors all over the place, and you don't have to track with me, but I know this feeling having uh, been in a long-distance relationship for a year when my uh, to-be wife was um, in Malaysia for a year. I know the feeling of speaking to her before she's about to get on the plane, FaceTiming, speaking to her, hearing from her, and then she goes and you lose contact for a while, and then you check online and you see that the plane has taken off. So you start to make your way to the airport, and you're waiting and you're looking for the signs. You're checking your phone to see when the plane is in the air and when it's expected to land. And then you get to the airport and you're looking at all the boards, and you're seeing the time ticking down for it to arrive. But then... A delay. There's a bracket and it says delay. Now how stupid would it be if I went, oh, I'm off then. No, I, I take into account delays sometimes happen. There's certain things that will go on. But I stay there and the anticipation should only grow. And it grows and grows until the point that the arrivals doors open and she comes through. And I had really bad eyesight at that time. So I kept on like running towards the wrong people. So I learned to just stand there and wait for her to run to me. But we're waiting for Christ to arrive. We're waiting. He is capturing up whole numbers of people into this plane. And they are on their way to this earth to bring his kingdom. It is going to happen. All the signs are there. We've got the Bible to tell us the major signs. We're looking at the boards. There might be delays. There might be seeming delays and whatever else. But the motivation for living the Christian life is the growing anticipation of Christ's arrival. It's not trying to be a better person. It's not trying to sort your life out. It is Christ arriving on this planet to make all things new. That's what we're waiting for as a people. That's what we encourage one another to, to, to remember. That's what's coming. We mustn't lose sight. Jesus is arriving. So that stupid phrase, look busy, Jesus is coming. Ignore that. Look forward to Jesus is coming. That will give you the motivation for everything that you're doing in this life to honor Christ. So band, if you come up, this song is perfectly chosen. 
So let's stand and get ready to sing this song that will just remind us of this reality that Jesus is coming. Father, thank you that you've set all of this plan in motion, that you are the sovereign Lord over all of it. And though we feel at times broken down exiles, refugees sometimes, and there's genuinely physical refugees all over the world, Lord, displaced and experiencing extreme discomfort. Many of them are your people, Lord. Thank you that we can all, all of us, no matter what our circumstances or situations, cling to the promises that we've read in Jeremiah, that you are keeping your word, you will keep your word, and one day all things will be restored for the glory of Jesus' name. He is coming. He is arriving. He is going to arrive, and we look forward to that day. Holy Spirit, help us to grow in our anticipation for that moment, and in that, to draw many more people into that reality as well. For his glory, I pray. Amen.